Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cine fan where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Hello and welcome to another suspense-filled episode of, of a Cine Lit. We are discussing Hitchcock's Vertigo, uh, not just for random reasons. We're not just plucked it out of thin air, like we do with many of the other podcasts we do. But this one, we figured we'd start to take a look at some of the films that are dominating the top 20 list of the Sight and Sound Critics Poll and Directors Poll that's conducted every 10 years, with the next one due this November uh, in 2022. And in a shock change to the old guard in 2012, Vertigo pips Citizen Kane to the top of the Critics Poll uh, for sight and sound chart. So we thought we'd start with Vertigo and Hitchcock. We've already covered The Wrong Man and The Trouble with Harry on our Patreon exclusive podcast. So if you are interested in more Hitchcock, then do check out that and sign up for our Patreon. But we're here, we're here we're talking about arguably his masterpiece. I mean, critics are fairly unanimous in that. My name is Adam Marsh. I am joined today by Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, really looking forward to this. Vertigo is is like a top 10 favourite for me, if not top three. Wow. Yeah, Hitchcock's masterpiece, although not everybody agrees. So. Yeah, I must admit, I'm not, it's not, it's not my favourite Hitchcock for a start. Um, and I'm not sure whether I enjoy it that much. I watched it again in preparation for this and I did enjoy it. But I think one of the things about it, it didn't draw me in. I was sitting there and watching it critically. So yeah. I could I was sitting there watching, oh, that's a really clever use of mise en scene. Oh, that's a really interesting use of uh, a special visual effects. So, oh, and they've introduced that dolly cam zoom effect to make to induce vertigo in the viewers. That's that's really interesting. It didn't, but it didn't draw me into the story. Yeah, but you've 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 used the word enjoy there, and then you've talked a lot about the sort of technicalities of the film, and I I, I actually think that's what it's about, and I think that's that's part of its appeal to a certain type of viewer, main, mainly mm. movie critics. I think um, it's not an enjoyable film. It isn't, <laughs> you know, it, it's not supposed to be, and I think you are supposed to to be in awe of its sort of technical aspects and some of the uh, the sort of trickier experimental techniques that Hitchcock's bringing into this. 
I mean, to, to, to get onto it as a sort of narrative story, for starters, it opens with this incredible chase scene. And I, I one thing I'd like to point out about the, the chase scene is um, I think it's a rip-off of the opening scene of uh, a Frizz Freeling Warner Brothers cartoon <laughs> from 1954 called Satan's Waiting, which has um, Sylvester the Cat chasing Tweety Pie across uh, a bunch of telegraph wires onto the roof of a skyscraper and then running along the edge of the skyscraper and then Sylvester falls off. And it's almost shot for shot the opening of Vertigo four years early. Wow. Okay. Um, you, you, so check out Satan's Waiting. And thematically as well, the way the, way the scene is used and the sort of length of the scene sort of fits in with, with the way that Hitchcock uses his scene in Vertigo. Um, I think the, the great thing for me about Vertigo is that the opening scene, A, it has the first person we see on, on screen is uh, Steve Conte, who's a sort of well-known bit part player and well-known TV actor of the 50s. And he's playing this character sometimes called the fugitive or the burglar. And, and he's we, we see him sort of climbing onto the roof first, pursued by a, a, a uniformed cop and then pursued by Jimmy Stewart. And um, he gets away because Stewart, Stewart's left dangling on the edge of the, um, the, the, the skyscraper about to fall to his doom. The cop stops his pursuit of the villain who escapes so we're already getting the message here that this this film's not going to be conventional. The the bad guys get away, and the good guys, as we as we see with the cop, fall to their deaths. Things don't go well for 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 the good guys here for the the voice of authority. So what you're saying, Daryl, is that Vertigo Two, where they get the criminal, yeah, is yeah. the one to really watch if that's part of the story it, you it want to be. follow. <laughs> interesting interesting you say that adam because i think there's a possible alternative here um in that one or two critics and i'm 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 right along with them on this i don't think any of vertigo happens i think we're watching the 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 dying dream of jimmy stewart's character scotty I, I think he falls to his death in the movie. We, Hitchcock shows him hanging on. He shows the copper trying to rescue him who, who fails and falls. And then Jimmy Stewart's just left dangling in, in, in midair, 100 feet off the ground. You know, one, one or two sort of analysts of, of the film have compared it to the, the famous Ambrose Bierce story, um, uh, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, where the, um, the protagonist... Um, escapes hanging, the rope breaks. It's a sort of civil uh, American Civil War story. Um, he escapes hanging when the rope breaks and he falls into a river and then he sort of swims off and he, he goes off in search of his wife. And then he, he sort of embraces his wife at the end of the story, having, having found her, and her embrace turns into the noose and he's suddenly back there being hung. And, and the whole story hasn't happened. And I think that's the case with Vertigo. There, there is a take on it that says that we never see what happens to Jimmy Stewart's character. We never see him rescued. And then we just suddenly fade out of that opening scene, which is completely disconnected to the rest of the story. And the only, the only connection is that uh, the inference is that it's this incident that gives him his, his vertigo, his fear of heights, which then does feed into the story. But, yeah, there is a reading of vertigo that, that, that says... None of it happens. It's all it's all in his head. 
as he's dangling and presumably then falls. And, and, and these are his final thoughts as he sort of plummets to the ground. So, yeah, I mean, there, there, is, there is, I think, possibility for further expansion on Vertigo. Now, one, one thing I'd love to see, I, I, know, I know that um, there, was, there was a fairly recent novel that looked at the uh, Madeleine character played by Kim Novak and sort of filled in her backstory a little bit. And I don't know if that's a story I want to read. What The alternative story I'd like to see is, is the Barbara Belgadis character, Midge. I'd love to see a version of Vertigo through her eyes. Yeah, I think, I think that would be very sort of Hitchcockian and very interesting because she's the Jimmy Stewart character's um, former fiancé they're, they're still friends. They they sort of have digs at each other all the way through the movie. And she's presented as a very sort of uptight sort of person. She wears those great sort of 50s uh, specs, uh, very sort of severe looking specs. Mm. You know, she's very sort of straight laced and sort of tight buttoned up. She designs 1950s restricted bras as her job. That's, that's her, her, her employment. And compare that with... The, the various Kim Novak characters who are very sort of um, free-spirited free and who, who pointedly, if that's the word here, don't wear bras. You've, you've got this immediate comparison between these two characters fighting for the affections of, uh, of, of Jimmy Stewart, in, although in, in, in by no means a conventional love story type no, way. No. Yeah, we, we've, got, we've got all that sort of process before we even get started talking about the main body of the film. Well, that's what I'm saying. Maybe, maybe we should just, just like summarise the film for those people who haven't seen Vertigo. Now, now you're talking because I think you can summarise a lot of films. Let's, let's summarise Jaws, for instance. You know, three guys go off and hunt a shark. Let's summarise E.T. You know, an alien comes down to Earth and befriends a small boy. You can pack that into a few words. Let's summarise Vertigo. We ain't going to get that in a dozen words. Well, no, but not all movies do. I mean, this movie is, uh, it's about Jim, James Stewart's character, who is a former police officer. We see him, as I say, as Daryl has explained, we see him at the start of the movie. So he suffers from acrophobia. Uh, as Daryl has said, it probably started at the, in this opening sequence as a way of laying that as a, as a, a plot point for the rest of the film. He, he becomes a private detective. He's hired by an old friend to follow his wife, who he's told is obsessed with a dead woman who committed who died many years ago and at age 26, at the same age of this wife, and she's going to commit suicide. So he's been hired to follow her to make sure she doesn't commit suicide. And spoiler he fails. She commits suicide. It's a nightmare. It's a trauma. And he's upset by the whole situation. And then sees another woman on the streets who looks very much like uh, the Madeline El Elders character. Yeah, yeah. The Elders? The, 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 the Kim Novak character. So who looks very much like her and starts to follow her. And, and then in, in, in what is not a spoiler... The film tells you this as you're going through. It is the same woman. She hasn't committed suicide. She confesses it in a letter halfway through the movie. The big twist, the big reveal is there in the movie right halfway through. But then she decides to carry on having a relationship with, with James Stewart. Um, and he starts to reshape her in the, in the vision of what Madeline looked like with blonde hair and grey suits and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's the basic plot. 
as you say, not on the back of a postcard. It's not die hard in a building, is it? You know, it's not terrorist invader building. Sure. One sure. man fights back, you know. It's- and and it, and I mean, at the point you've stopped doing a synopsis there is just about the point where it starts getting really weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, you, you mentioned there the, the character of Madeleine, Judy and Carlotta, the, the, mm. the, the, the sort of uh, the, the, the dead ancestor. This this turns into a possession story for a while as well, you know, yeah, one yeah, of yeah. one of the early sort of possession movies. Even though it's a fake possession, it's mm-hmm. uh, um, which is which is brilliant, you know. Yeah, so we've got this Madeleine character, Kim Novak. You know, not the world's greatest actor. I, I think she's great in this, and it's a really really challenging role, you know. Well, I think uh, I think the roles the roles are fairly vacant roles anyway. Yeah, you know, yeah, there's not yeah. you, you know James Stewart in some ways fills the character with what he wants the character to be. Yeah. So yeah. Novak being maybe not the best of actresses. It's a, um, it's a fit for fit. this. It, it, yeah. does, it doesn't need Grace Kelly or Ingrid Bergman, does no. it? So, or, Ve- or Vera Miles, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. As the original choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jimmy Stewart, though, he's got his identities throughout this film. As we say, he, he may even die at the start of the film. That that's a possibility that what what we're what we're seeing in the main body of the film is his own projection in his dying moments of his his take on himself and his own character. One one noticeable thing throughout the script is the number of different ways in which he is named or described. His yeah. his his name is John Ferguson. Immediately we we see him change from being a police detective to a private detective. He's called John Ferguson, but he's referred to throughout the film at various times as by both his first name and his surname, but he's also given nicknames as well. He's he's known as Scotty. Mm-hmm. He's called John, Johnny, Scotty, Ferguson, and various combinations of all those names. And he even refers to himself when he's having one of his sort of barbed little chats with uh, with um, with Midge, Barbara Belgedes, and they're, they're talking about um, uh, relationships and should they get married and things like that. Should they get married to other people now they're not going to tie the knot with each other, you know. And he he actually refers to himself at one point as available Ferguson, which I think is his very very best sort of identity. And um, I mean, this I, I think the, the the script giving him all of these different identities, sort of springing out of uh, this very basic name, John Ferguson, is is a sign that. He's got as much going on as as Madeline. You know, he's as confused as Madeline about who he is and what his place is in the world. He sort of knows himself perhaps less well than than other people do. I I, I think Mitch knows him better than than he knows himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where it's just like identity is obviously a major part of this movie. As you say, both from the main, from obviously the the. The, the dual character that Kim Novak's playing, but like you say, like this this past to, to, to what at least one of these characters. I mean, with Jimmy Jimmy Stewart's character, he has those those other lives that we we told about. Oh, that was the life when I was a police officer. That was the life when we were engaged to be married at college. You know, it's like there's all these other lives that don't seem to fit with who he is in the moment. Yeah, yeah. it's it's terrific because this could have easily been 
rear window mark too yeah you? yeah and, and yet it is it goes way i mean rear window is a masterpiece of suspense but and, and it's a great character piece for jimmy stewart but this this is just something else you know this could have easily been a repeat of that character you could have almost had the same character again you know but what what happens in vertigo and what happens with with ferguson is just just beyond the realm of anything that Hitchcock had, and or, J- or James Stewart had ever done before. Yeah, I mean, this was the fourth time they collaborated. So maybe it was like getting to that point where, well, if, I'm going to, if we're going to do something together again, it needs to be something different. It's, it's got to be special, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think Stewart, again, is a, is a good fit for this. I mean, you, you, Hitchcock had got his favourite actors, Cary Grant, I suppose, uh, around this time as well. You can't, you can't imagine Grant for one second remotely in, in this no, part, can you? No. It's, a, it's a Stuart... Jimmy Stewart could play the Cary Grant parts. I don't think Cary Grant could play these extreme Jimmy Stewart parts. I don't even think Cary Grant could have played something like Harvey in 1950, you know. Uh, well, I think I think Cary Grant doesn't have that... He doesn't have that vulnerability of his character. He's a very, very forceful character. He knows who he is. We yeah, know who yeah, he is. Yeah. And that comes across on screen in his performances. And I think yeah. in this movie, Jimmy Stewart... It is vulnerable. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what's going on. And Hitchcock, Hitchcock, of course, deals with both sides of, of, yeah. of that type of character. So, so yeah, he would he, he would he would either be making a Cary Grant movie or a James Stewart movie, you know, mm. which, and, and not always with those actors either, but I think they'd always be the character at the centre of his film would either be a sort of very confident man or a very haunted man. And here we've, we've got we've got the sort of haunted guy, you know. Yeah, yeah. So this is an interesting movie. I mean, it's one of those ones where it's... Um... We talked about this briefly before we we started the podcast. In that, you can see why critics like it, but equally, you can see why it was mixed reviews on release, didn't do that well at the box office, and was shelved for years until the early eighties when it was re-released. Well, this was this was down to Hitchcock actually having the rights to the film, yeah. wasn't it? The, the five films that were shelved were um, uh, Rope, The Trouble with Harry. Vertigo, Rear Window, and um, oh, Man Who Knew Too Much, yeah. the, the 50s remake. And Hitchcock held the rights to those, which is why they weren't available for many years. I I, I wonder why he, he chose not to let these films out. You'd think if you'd made Rear Window, you'd want people to see I, it. I but... think it was just one of those ones where it was like monetizing films after release wasn't really a thing. So once they'd flopped, in in many cases, these cases weren't big release. You know, some of them, they made money, but they weren't massive hits. Yeah, they just got shelved. And in the sense of like, well, I own the rights, so they're going to go on the shelf. And no one's knocking on my door saying I want to re-release Vertigo in 1973 or something like that. And it was yeah, only yeah. really home video when that came in. Uh, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. We we know from the sight and sound polls, you've just gone through with me the uh, some of the older results. And pre-1984, pre the re-release, Vertigo was getting into those polls or or, or getting around, well, you know, it was incomplete. Yeah, I think I think what it was, I mean, there's there's, there's many reasons why why it was it, it wasn't initially embraced. I think it was very experimental in some ways and our general audiences were, and then it kind of disappeared. And I think the growth of sort of like film theory, culture, 
particularly in America in, in this in yeah, the sixties yeah. and seventies. Post, post the French yeah. New Wave, post Kaye du Cinema. Exactly. Yeah. I think that that was starting to people starting to, to enthusiastically look at films and try to dig out the auteur theory, you know, and dig out the, find out the American auteurs and the and the and the Western auteurs as opposed to just and, French guys. And here's well, the perfect movie. Exactly. Yeah. You know, this this is the one, isn't yeah. it? You so know? I mean like in the early seventies it was just bubbling under the sort of like uh, top 10 uh, sight and sound poll uh, in 72. I think people in the know could still see it. I mean, I've, I've, I've read people yeah. like Steven Spielberg have sort of, you know, borrowed prints from the studio yeah. archive and things like that. So you could see it if you wanted to and if you were in the business and if you knew someone who knew someone. Mm. But, um, I mean, I, I guess, you know, we, we, we've talked in the past about Richard Franklin and how he was sort of friendly with Hitchcock, the, the director of... Um, yeah. Uh, Patrick and Psycho too, and I, you, you know damn well that Richard Franklin was seeing all these films in the sixties and early seventies. So they, they were available to, 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 to people who wanted them, but, but just not, just not to people like us. Franklin was at UCLA, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think a lot of those directors were, and I wouldn't be surprised me if there was a print there, and that was that got brought out and played fairly regularly. They, they'd, they'd have probably had classes yeah. on it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I mean, so so it's it's trajectory from flop, mixed reviews, no audiences really engaging with it, to topping the sight and sound poll in 2012 was was a was a slow progression one. It was like yeah, but bubbling under in 72, didn't even chart anywhere close in 62. 82, it was in the just in the top 10 at number nine. Ten years later in 92, it was up to number four. Post post re-release. Post re-release. Yeah, so a whole and then, new, a whole new swathe yeah, of people had seen yeah. it. Yeah, and then yeah. 10 more years in 2002, it was number two, and then number one in 2012, uh dethroning Citizen Kane. So it's yeah, yeah. had a long run. I'm I, I wonder, I wonder whether it'll still be there in November well, when they do the new charts. I don't I doubt it, to be honest. There's the question, because let's talk about some of the contentious issues yeah. here. And I think the big, big, big one is the way in which Ferguson manipulates or, or thinks he's manipulating, because of course he isn't, but he thinks he's manipulating the Judy character yeah. and turning her into Madeline. And it's the the most warped obsession that any Hitchcock character has ever had, I think even more so than than the stuff Norman Bates is doing in Psycho. You know, it, it's it's just I I it's well the thing is it's, I think what it what, what's fascinating what's fascinating about it is it's so upfront. Yeah. There's yeah. no sort of like hiding, hide your shame. It's none of that. It's none of that. It's like, this is what we're doing, Judy. I'm gonna turn you into the the vision of this dead woman that I loved, and you're gonna go along with it. Yeah, uh, and she and she does, and she go does along yeah. With it. But but then we understand why at the end of the movie. But while it's happening, we don't understand why. And I think certainly a lot of feminists and a lot of feminist critics take against the movie because of that, because they respond to what they're seeing on screen at any particular time, rather than a lot of people write about this film in terms of what's happening on screen at this point, this point, and this point, rather than taking a more sort of holistic approach and looking at the whole thing after they've watched it, you know, looking back at the the trajectory of Madeline's journey through through Carlotta and through Judy and the reasons why she's doing what she does. What what are the reasons? Are there are those reasons strong enough to to justify it? To justify her as a character going along with it. 
I don't think they are. I think I think in cinematic terms and in terms of the effect of this story, I think I think they're wonderful. But if if you if you're trying to put realism into this, (laughs) well, basically, if you're saying on on the one hand, again, we're back to the start of the movie. Are you a person who thinks this is all Scotty's dying dream? Or are you a person who thinks this is really happening? You know, and if you think it's really happening, no, those those points aren't strong enough. If this is all in Scotty's head, it makes more sense. I, I don't think they. I don't think it is a dream. I don't think there's enough in the rest of the movie to in, to indicate that this is this is yeah. a fiction. Well, one argument in favour of that is the ending of the film. We'll we'll talk about the the specifics of the ending later because they're wonderful. But the the fact that you 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 don't you don't see any resolution for Scotty. You don't you, if if it is a dream, you don't see him sort of wake up at the end. So yeah. which, which sort of suggests that oh maybe it isn't maybe it is all supposed to be real. But this all leaves itself open to discussion because it is open-ended like that and it's not resolved in in any in any conventional sense and yet there is this possibility that it it is all a fantasy but then as you say you've got these contentious aspects surrounding the Judy character and, and the way that she is seemingly being manipulated by a sort of male Almost like father figure, you know. This is the thing with Hitchcock's yeah. casting. You know, Grant and Stewart aren't young guys, are they? You know, yeah. they're they're they're, and, and so when when you see them in films with Grace Kelly or with Ingrid Bergman or with Kim Novak here, you know, there, there is that extra little level of creepiness to it. You know, that yeah, that yeah. oh right, you know, that that they're sort of madly in love with this character and yet aren't, aren't they 20 years too old for her you know yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and here I think that's really pointed and the fact that Judy goes along with it when you're taking that at face value before you know what's happening in the film it's really really disturbing and I think that disturbance stays with a lot of viewers and with a lot of critics yeah I mean, and, and especially the more feminist oriented film. well is that is that is that sort of like a deliberate decision or is it just like oh fuck it it's 50s hollywood you know what i mean we like he's the star she's the new hot hot up-and-coming actress we put them together that's fine we don't give a shit we got fred astaire alongside audrey hepburn it's like 60 years difference or whatever it was yeah, you know it's yeah. ridiculous every okay. funder in the wrong man you know we yeah yeah certainly certainly i think hitchcock had had definite things in mind with vertigo as he often did with his films you know these things didn't all happen by accident but i think in this case the casting probably was it was just conventional Hollywood, you know. Uh, but I think then it's it's some it's another layer for critics to then look at and pick at, isn't it? You know. Well, I think it's one of those things where, where, where did Hollywood have actresses in their forties on hand? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it did. It didn't. It didn't really have a, a swathe of younger men. It was very much a situation like it is now, you know, where we the, the big stars in cinema today are still Tom Cruise, Nicolas Cage, Keanu Reeves, you know, who we were all pushing 60. Yeah. And and it was it was like that back then. You know, it was there was there was this sort of older generation that had that we that had been making films since the 30s were still current and still popular at the box office. John Wayne, you can throw in there as well, you yeah. know, alongside the Grants and, and Stewarts. And there weren't, there wasn't really a generation of up-and-coming young actors. And if there were, it was people like James Dean and it was the Method School, you know, who who weren't really capable 
of and, and weren't really interested, I think, in playing the sort of romantic male lead. You know, they all wanted to be the character actor. They wanted to do something different. So what you'd not got was a generation of actors coming up underneath Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart that wanted to play those sort of roles. So if you had a romantic lead in a movie, the, the pool of actors that you were drawing from were all in their late 40s and early 50s, you know. Yeah, and 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 like I said, like there's no, there was no age appropriate casting options yeah, really, yeah, yeah. Uh, from from a Hollywood star star point of view, kind of thing. Which is yeah, it's fascinating. It's very very similar to to to, uh, to the discussions around recent Top Gun movie with uh, Tom Cruise and, and Jennifer Connelly. They've cast the actress over fifty. That's amazing. Well done. But she's the one one over fifty who looks like she's late, <laughs> late thirties. You know what I mean? It's it's not exactly. Yeah, they, you know they've 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 not they've not brought Kelly McGillis back, have they? You know, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so yeah, I mean uh, there are parallels here between the the sort of modern era, and and I I, I don't think audiences notice either. I. I I don't think people that are going to see Keanu Reeves movies now think, oh, who's who's this old guy in the suit shooting everyone? They think, oh, doesn't Keanu look cool? You know, and I think they did with Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant in the Hitchcock films. Okay. No, nobody thought, who's this old guy? You know, they thought, oh, it's it's the new Jimmy Stewart film. Great. Okay. Well, let's move away from from the axes and the performance into the slightly more experimental aspects of this because that's oh, yes. that's kind of what's pushed this one to the top of the charts as opposed to say rear window or north by northwest or something like that it's the more experimental stuff it's those things i mean oh my god this is amazing the critics have really latched on to that kind of uh, use of the french new wave-esque uh, style of filmmaking alongside hitchcock's traditional thriller suspense yeah, and and out and out surrealism as well at times. yeah yeah absolutely you know, yeah. genuine surrealism and sur- surreal is an overused word this this is this is bunwell-esque at times you know it, yeah. it, 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 and 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 hitchcock had worked with salvador dali of course on uh, spellbound mm. and it shows here <laughs> he's, he's he's not forgotten he's you know the, there's a lot of that in here yeah absolutely i mean some of the some of the set pieces are are, are beautiful you know, like, I'm assuming there. It starts with the opening credits, doesn't it? I mean, it sets the tone straight away. Yeah. You have, it starts in black and white, and then you have that red filter, blood red filter over the top, and then you have those wonderful soul bass opening credits. Yeah, with the great coloured spirals. Spirals, yeah, background. yeah, 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 yeah. Like he's 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 gone mad with the spirograph. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Is it Uzumaki? Uzumaki. Obsession with spirals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, just utterly sets the tone straight away. Yeah, and then Hitchcock's own credit come emerging from a giant eyeball as mm. well, you know, which is not none more Unshan Andalou, you know. It's, yeah. uh, it's none more Salvador Dali. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and like you say, I mean, also adding to the sort of like critics and the sort of like regard, it is Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo. Yeah, you know, it's not. It's not. Anyway, it's not. It's not like the writers of Le Diabolique, yeah. uh, which was based yeah. on the story of that. You know, so they had a name. They've got a, a, a cachet, but no, 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 this is Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, and it, it, even yeah. back yeah. in 1958, setting the tone. And then after after the credits are finished, the very first thing we see on screen is an iron bar across the screen gigantic iron bar on screen you know 
and it's it's almost a challenge to the audience. It's almost saying you're you this is impenetrable. You're not going to get through this. You know, the next two hours are going to be tough. You know, we're putting this obstacle in the way to prove it. You know, and then you see this pair of hands grip the bar, and it's a bit part player. It's Steve Conte, a sort of TV uh, bit player. You know, it's not Jimmy Stewart. You know, it's not Grant. It's not a big major name. You know, and and then you get into the whole chase scene that we've already talked about then there's this idea that oh is 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 it all a dream you know is it all jimmy stewart's dream and then we're, we're off and running you know and uh so yeah i mean what what uh what particular set pieces and particular scenes stand well, out for you then well the the the, the 1960s batman ones uh, i think ones where, where it feels like you you know diddly, 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 diddly. he's got all this crazy sort of like batman-esque batman tv show-esque visuals yeah. with jimmy stewart going like crazy i guess yeah they they, they were pretty pretty special and they look like, yeah. oh my god, yeah. this is like an, this is animation in yeah, yeah. a mainstream thriller. Uh, as an audience member, you sit there thinking, "What's what is this? Why has it suddenly become like a Disney cartoon or something?" Yeah, yeah, very, very strongly copied, I think, by um, George Romero in uh, in Creepshow in the eighties. You know, yeah. who who was striving for that EC horror comics style with what he did, but it actually ended up looking more like Vertigo. I think. Yeah, yeah, it certainly shot the movie through with like what 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 is what is going on you know you you, it reinforces that you don't know what's going on at all do you and you know even if you're (laughs) tricking along following it thinking okay yeah this is this is really good i'm enjoying this jimmy stewart's got his little plot line going on and suddenly just off off it goes off the edge of a cliff viewers at the time would have seen rear window and they'd have seen the um uh man who knew too much Mm. and they'd have seen things like the wrong man and the the approach to a hitchcock film would be oh we're going to go in we're not going to know what's going on at the start but gradually we'll be given clues along the way and we'll be able to guess what's happening you know and in vertigo you're suddenly floundering you know you're half an hour in and you're thinking Hitch isn't playing the game here, you know. Yeah, this, yeah. this 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 isn't what he, he normally does. But. He doesn't, but he but he does, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, 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 he he's very well, canny. This, this is this is the film's masterstroke, I think. Is yeah. is that? Yeah, it is a conventional Hitchcock film. If if you look for that, but yeah. but you really really have to delve in amongst all the surrealism and all of the crazy sort of visuals and stuff to find that, and it's so easy to get lost in Vertigo. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was sitting there watching it and thinking, it, it, obviously, this this yes, it's. It, I mean, does he really follow on from that visual style in other movies after this? No, because I mean, um, North by Northwest. Went right back yeah, to a yeah. very traditional style. Then Psycho was filmed with this TV crew in black yeah. and white. I mean, this is, I can see the comparisons with Psycho on this because, particularly the sort of like structure of the yeah. of the script. Yeah. I mean, you have halfway through this movie, you have that big confession, that, and the, the the twist ending happens an hour in. You know, you've got yeah. another hour yeah. to go yeah. yet. Where and, and similar with, with Psycho, where we have that midpoint ending and then a, re, a restart of the movie, don't we? Yeah, I, I suppose the, the closest sort of sister to Vertigo is is Marnie, I would say. Right. Okay. In in that it's it it's got a weird psychology to it, it's got weird sort of um sexual themes to it. It's got the male character treating the, the female lead 
in ways that maybe don't play well to modern audiences and perhaps didn't play particularly well to yeah. contemporary ones. And it's got it's got amazing striking colour and, vis- and use of visuals and striking imagery. So, yeah, I, th- I think Marnie sort of... Uh, is is almost a sort of twin to, to Vertigo in that sense, but even then, that it's, it, it it doesn't come anywhere near to doing what Vertigo does. No, I mean, like you say, it was. I don't think it was massively acceptable for audiences at the time either. In 1958, where we are, you you got the beatnik period, you got people, you know, you got the start of that sort of like 60s rebellion movement and and the feminist movement and things like that. And it's just. It doesn't feel like it's it's speaking to the generation that are watching movies around that period. Sure. And I think also it's probably not speaking to a generation now either. But in the years in between in between that, I think maybe maybe the, the auto theory is not as in fashion as it was. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, it, it requires a full buying in of the auto theory to fully embrace Vertigo, I think. What about Hitchcock's own personal reputation? I, yeah. I mean, more and more stories have come out about him over the years, and um, he's he's not a Me Too kind of guy, is he, you know? In, well, no, he's and, a, and he's I, a I prime think, candidate for Me Too. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, yeah, I think that's affecting some of the modern and younger critical response to, to his films. Yeah. Is, is, is he potentially going to be a forgotten figure in 100 years' time? Well... Most people will be a forgotten figure in a hundred years' time. Darryl. You know what I mean? It's like that's a hard one to a hard yeah, one but, to judge. But, you know, pe- people people of his level though and his stature. You know, I mean, Be- Beethoven and Mozart aren't, and 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 you yeah. sort of think, well, you know, who's going to survive from the movies? You know, I, I think there's a separation of art and the artist. I think with Hitchcock, it's slightly more difficult because a lot of his issues that make him a prime candidate feed through into the plots of his movies. But they are movies and they are plots of movies. They are not his own yeah. documentaries, are they? You know, yeah. so. And I, as you've said, he, 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 didn't, he didn't really try to hide this no. either. You know, it was all up front. I mean, you know, um, Jimmy Stewart's almost a sort of surrogate Hitchcock in, in, in Vertigo, and he certainly isn't in Rear Window. No. But... Uh, yeah, it's it's a difficult one. I, I, I suppose our first indication of, of, of this is going to be in the sight and sound poll. So it's going to be interesting uh, for many reasons. But one of the key points of interest is, is Vertigo going to be number one? Is it even going to figure in the top 10? Is it going to plummet like like the, the cop at the start of Vertigo plummets, you know, and like Madeline plummets? I think it will. I think it will drop. But equally, I think mainly because... Even in just in the last 10 years, the criti- critics have changed. Yeah. You know, you think about like 2012, maybe even 20 years ago, 2000, uh, 2002, the internet wasn't, the, the critics on the internet, it was, it was all, the, the people they were polling were still, oh, it was The Guardian, yeah, lead writer, it was The yeah. Daily Telegraphs, it was The Science Sound Writers, and that, and that was it. Whereas like in the last 20 years, we've seen the rise of, other areas of journalism and other areas of film criticism that maybe would have different takes on the canon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, there have even been critics that have come and gone in that period of time. You know, people like Harry Knowles, who, yeah. who was sort of huge 20 years ago and is almost forgotten now, you know. and yeah. Uh, um, So, yeah, uh, the, the internet, I think, is going to make a big difference here. And uh, what will be interesting, I think, is the aftermath of the poll. If Vertigo does fall... 
or even if it, it even if it fails to make the top ten, which I think is a possibility, the debate that's going to go on about the film, I, I, I think it's going to revive debate about the film. I think it's going yeah. to have a lot of defenders coming out of the woodwork and saying, "Look, why why don't you like Vertigo? It's a masterpiece." And I I, I think the the conversation about that maybe towards the end of this year and in in years to come is is going to be really really interesting and a whole new level of debate about this film. But it's I mean it's also quite interesting because obviously Sight and Sound do a critics poll and they also do a director's poll. Yeah. And Vertigo is not as well liked on the director's poll as it has been on the critics poll. And the, the critics poll is much more reverential towards the traditional canon. Yeah. Of, of these are the great films of a, whereas the director's one is much more looser and there's a lot more modern films in that, in that chart. Yeah. You'll get your Wong Kar Wai and your David Lynch in, in, in the director's polls. Whereas, you know, the, the critics, it tends to be Citizen Kane, Tokyo story, that sort of thing. So. Well, that's right. Um, yeah. 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 There is this accepted sort of list of films that you're allowed to vote for. Yeah. Um, it is going to be interesting to see, I think, um, the the response to the poll. And I mean, is are, are, are we definitely saying, are we calling this here and saying that Vertigo isn't going to be the number one? And would it be a shock if it was? I think it would be a shock. I mean, I think, to be fair, it was a shock when it took over Citizen Kane yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, 10 years ago. Um, but just look, just looking at those 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 charts from 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 2012 you had like vertigo was way ahead of citizen kane it wasn't even close it was like there was like 191 critics put it in their top five yeah it was like oh there's there's a new kid in town yeah, yeah move, move and, over and yeah. citizen kane was two with 100, 157 so yeah. it's like 40 oh, it was a quite a lot and there and, and the and the critics poll like you say it was very much like that traditional canon you had citizen kane tokyo story rules of the game sunrise 2001 Searchers, Man with the Movie Camera, Passion of Joan of Arc, yeah, and eight, the, the eight film, and a half. The films you're supposed to like. Well, yeah, but all, but also looking at that chart, only one of them, in fact, none of them were any later than the seventies. No, no. You know, two thousand and one, maybe the latest, 60, 68. Whereas the director's poll, which is obviously much more directed, had Tokyo Story as the number one, which was, yeah, kind of surprised yeah. me. But it had it, it, in the top ten, it had Taxi Driver. Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, it had Mirror and Tarkovsky. Yeah. All in that thing. And it had like, you know, it had a different vibe to that chart. It was yeah. much more modern, yeah. much yeah. more new. And and like like I say, you're even getting 21st century films in there. You know, one one car Y seems popular. If you look at the sort of bubbling under yeah. sections, you know, or you look at the um, you look at the individual votes that they 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 list each each um contributor, don't they? And they yeah, list yeah. they list the films that they've picked. And if you look through those, you're seeing David Lynch in there and you're seeing Paul Thomas Anderson and people like that, you know. So yeah, maybe the 70s will now be the classic era in the new poll, you know, this could be a thing. We 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 just don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm saying there's, there's more modern films yeah. in that in that these movies that are getting on towards 50, 50 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, we still think of them as modern because we 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 were sort of seeing these, you know, yeah. as they came out or in in sort of repertory performances and things, you know. And uh, no, I mean, talk, talking of which, I. Um, uh, I I saw all of these Hitchcock reissues in 1984 when they came out, and I was yeah. I was 
in my early 20s at the time. And I'd I'd a huge film fan from my teens, you know, and for, or e even earlier. So I'd read up a lot on film in, in books and magazines, as you did then, you know, and uh, watched a lot of old movies on TV. And so I was aware that there were these Hitchcock films that I'd never seen. You know, I'd, I'd oh, what's this vertigo? And it's supposed to be... Not only can't can you not see it, but it's supposed to be really, really good. Everyone says it's his best film. You know, yeah. what's this real window? Everyone says it's amazing. You know, why can't why isn't it on telly? You know, and and then then news came through that um, the five films were going to be reissued. I actually got to see Rear Window at uh, the ABC in Derby. It got big, major, popular release. You know, yeah. It can't have done much box office around the country because the rest of the films went art house. But yeah. uh, I went to see Vertigo and uh, Laurie Hayward, who people might remember as the uh, the, the the first boss at the uh, the Metro Cinema when it opened in the early eighties. Laurie ran a course on the five missing Hitchcock films, and we got we all got to see them as part of the course. I think there were about a dozen of us on on the evening class that he ran, and so we'd watch the film at the Metro, and then we'd go and debate it the following week in class, you know. Mm. And I saw Vertigo. And I was stunned. It, it instantly became like, oh, this is this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. This is me, age twenty-one, you know. And but I'd, I'd seen I'd seen a lot by that point already. But I thought, oh, this this is this is top three for me, and it still is to this day. Um, I went into class the following week, really enthusiastic and wanting to talk to Laurie and talk to the class about it and say, oh, wasn't Vertigo fantastic? You know, wasn't it amazing? You know. And the class was sort of divided, you know, much, much as, as we've been talking about with 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 the with critics and with audiences today. You know, uh, the class, their their instant reaction to Vertigo was half of the people seemed to be in tandem with me and saying, oh, yeah, it's Hitchcock's masterpiece, a great film, you know. And Laurie was sort of saying that as well. And there was this other half of the class who, oh, it is. They actually went as far as saying it's terrible. It's badly yeah. plotted. It doesn't make any sense. It's nothing. It's not as taut and tight as as Rear Window, you know, or as Psycho or, or The Birds or whatever. And and um, there was no middle ground. It was it, it was either love or hate within that classroom. Yeah, and I think that, that that's continued on, hasn't it? I mean, it's yeah. only going to get more more stark and as as nowadays you know yeah that's how movie criticism works you know you either love a movie or hate a movie there's no in between yeah the the other the other point to mention about 1984 is it was the year that that the great hitchcock fan and acolyte and and, and imitator brian de palma made his new film we we love body double we love yeah. body double on cine lit and at quad but uh again not everybody likes body double and uh yeah. and this this was great from De Palma, you know. He'd been accused for years, and especially with Obsession, which is basically a, a remake of Vertigo, the, the film that he did with Paul Schrader. You know, they pretty much remade Vertigo in the mid-70s as uh, Obsession. And then De Palma's other films, subsequent films like Dress to Kill and Blowout, were often being compared to Hitchcock. So 1984 comes along and the Hitchcock films gets reissued. And I love that De Palma dared to just say, right, I'm, I'm going to mash together the plots of Real Window and Vertigo as my mm. new film, you know. And it's great. You know, we we love Body Double. But what, what a statement to make in that year, you know. Yeah. To yeah, say yeah. 
okay, the Hitchcock films are back. Let's see what I can do with them, you know. And uh, yeah, lovely, lovely. But Vertigo had influence before that, though. I mean, Lucio Fulci's uh, late 60s uh, Giallo in, in Italy, a perversion story or one on top of the other, which I know sounds like a sort of tacky sex film, but is actually a sort of Vertigo influenced uh, Giallo. Yeah, is that the Marissa, Marissa Mel one? Marissa Mel, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Shot in, in America, wasn't it? So uh, uh, it's got a real sort of Vertigo vibe to it. And I, th- I think Vertigo has had its influence over the years. Even Mel, Mel Brooks' High Anxiety, you know, when he did his sort of Hitchcock spoof comedy, he's throwing in elements from Psycho and the Birds and Rear Window and all of these other movies. But the sort of core of High Anxiety seems to be very vertigo orientated. So even a Mel Brooks comedy sort of rips on it. And I think after 1984, once people had seen, uh, once the younger generation had seen the films, I think both Vertigo and Rear Window in particular became influential to a new generation as well. And you see elements of both of those films in, in a lot of modern cinema. Yeah, I mean, obviously Hitch was a household name, you know, throughout the 50s, 60s yeah. and 70s. So it's like you knew what Hitchcock was, even if you hadn't seen that many of his films. Yeah. You know, yeah. they had the TV series. Yeah. Well, you he, know, he, he sold the brand so well. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think spoofing Hitchcock or uh, or, or homaging Hitchcock, you could, you could do it without having necessarily been massively familiar with the movies. He was, he, was, he was a genre to himself in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that even a Mel Brooks would, would sort of take Vertigo as his chief inspiration yeah. rather than taking Psycho or one of the better known films, you know. Well, maybe maybe, maybe it's because it's got a looser, a looser structure. And I think that yeah. obviously helps in comedy a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah, could, could be. And, uh, you know, a, a, a comic, a comic version, a sort of outright comedy version of Vertigo would be something to see, wouldn't it, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, I, I want to talk about one shot in Vertigo in particular, which uh, is, is it's the point where we've, we've, we've been through the whole thing about Ferguson manipulating Judy and wanting to turn her into Madeline. And it's the first reveal. Once once he's, he's been out and bought an outfit with her and she's gone along, very compliantly has gone along with it all, or apparently so, has gone along with it all. And she's had her hair done and her hair dyed into the blonde style of Madeline. It's been, it's been curled in the same way as Madeline's. And she's wearing the outfit that Ferguson has, has made her, has bought for her and forced her to wear. And when she emerges through the doorway, and it's all shot in this sort of diffused, um, sort of soft focus um, glow, and it's got this sort of greenish tinge to it. And it's almost as though you're getting a fusion of Madeline, Judy and Carlotta, just for a second. And it, I, I think it's the key shot in the film. Okay, and, yeah. and, and and again, in, in terms of surrealism and experimentation and playing around with the visuals, this is this is a shot that you wouldn't have found in a Hitchcock film up to that point, and you didn't really find it after after that either. I think this is a, a sort of unique moment for Hitchcock, and it really does pull together the three strands of that character, just just for one moment. What do you think the inspiration was over the sort of like the Carl? I mean, we don't talk too much about the Carlotta character, but it seems rooted in a different 
different movie. Yeah, <laughs> okay, it feels, it feels like it's like Mexican melodrama or yeah, gothic yeah, melodrama yeah, yeah, type yeah. character. Well, possession films aren't really something that we became aware of until The Exorcist, are they? There'd, there'd been a few around in the 1940s. In fact, there was a film called Spellbound, nothing to do with the Hitchcock film. There's a British film called Spellbound, which was a possession film. And then you you, you get uh, some of the James Mason and, and Margaret Lockwood type films, some of the Gainsborough films occasionally touched on female characters that may have been taken over by another personality or a figure from the past. So it was known to audiences, this sort of thing. But of course, you'd, you'd also got the uh, the whole Bridie Murphy thing going on around this time with people being hypnotised and finding out about their past lives or multiple personalities and things like that, right at the time that Vertigo was being made. So I think pe- people were up for something that mixed psychology with a vague sense of the supernatural. Yeah, it did, uh, it did feel like it was, it just feel like it's like of its time in that, yeah. in that in tapping yeah. in something uh, that was oh, in, in the zeitgeist in that respect. Yeah. And, and yet The Exorcist and that wave of possession films comes along 15 years later and Vertigo suddenly looks ahead of its time as well. Yeah. You know, not only of its time, but it suddenly seems to, to sort of predict what's going to come in cinema in the future. Yeah, I kind of put it in a different way to, to things like Sight Exorcist. I think, yes, there is possession elements to it, but I don't feel that there's a direct lineage between the two. I feel I can, more, I can, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, for me, it's more like, you know, like Wuthering Heights kind yeah, of, yeah. like, S, ghosts of the past kind of elements. To, 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 being to, being to used in a, in a melodramatic sort yeah, of way, in yeah. an emotional sense. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, Daryl, so we've spent the last 50 minutes talking about Vertigo. Have we decided? It, should it be number one? Should it be held in the in, in the regard it is currently held in? Yeah, well, I'll always remember that 1984 screening and the impact it had on me and how it sort of leapt into my all-time favourite films and has sort of stayed there over the years. And I think for me, it always will. You know, I, I'm a person who... Uh, Although I I usually will agree with anyone making a protest about a film being, you know, allegedly sort of sexist or sort of anti-women or whatever, I can sort of see the other side in artistic terms. As you say, it is dividing the art from the artist in some cases, or it is dividing one set of opinions from another as well. And, And I can judge this as a film, as a piece of art, and as such... It's it's a masterpiece. Okay, I'm I'm less convinced. I'll be honest. I'm less convinced. I've watched it. Obviously, I've watched it numerous times previously, but I'm watching it again this week. The movie didn't draw me in. I I didn't lose myself in the movie. I was sitting there watching it from a critical point of view, and uh, thinking, "Oh, that's a clever piece of mise en scene. Oh, that's a nice editing technique. Oh, yeah." It was those kind of things that I found myself thinking as I was watching it. And I know we talked about that's that's part of what the reason it's why people love it. But it's like I need I need more, Daryl. I need more. I need more. I I think the film gives more. You know, I mean, there are things like if if there is this whole is it a dream or isn't it sort of thing, and then then you see the emphasis on things like the bell tower and the, the that crazy scene with with the the giant redwood trees and things Mm. and you think yeah there's all this imagery in there that could perhaps be taken as phallic but it's more likely it it works better if you take it as images of, of sort of tall things tall structures 
and there's this whole emphasis on falling from a great height you know both physically and metaphorically yeah. and uh, there's there's a there's always every every viewing of vertigo there's new stuff to pick out and new stuff to find and it will remain hitchcock's richest film for me for, for life Okay, well, on that bombshell, we will wait with bated breath to see what the Sight and Sound poll throws up in Indeed. November. We're hopefully going to tackle some more of the uh, top 15, top 20 kind of films that have been in those lists uh, over the next few months before um, Sight and Sound do reveal that that final list. And so maybe maybe I can even persuade Daryl to come up with his own top 20. <laughs> and we can have a look at those <laughs> cool thank you very you much you don't want to know <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for joining me daryl we will be back again in a couple of weeks time as i said previously we have done two other hitchcock films on our patreon subscription service so if you do fancy listening to that and some of the other patreon episodes that we've done sign up to the on patreon uh, if not check out our regular feed and do visit our facebook page and send us any ideas for topics that you would like to see us cover and we will try and get to them. Take care, everyone. See you next time.